2: another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We are here in Oshkosh, so we're doing our show from the field. It's a little bit of spontaneity here <laughs> with regard to our cool setting, which is uh, the bottom of Theater in the Woods, for those of you who have been to Oshkosh. Uh, it's a great facility. I've spoken here a number of times, so uh, you know, it should be a good show. But well, we have a special guest with us today that we met through Walking around, and of course, you two, of course, you two are not only photogenic, but you are the gift of gab, and I'm sure that those two qualities reign through when we introduce Heather. I will turn it to you, John, okay. since uh, you made this contact. We we uh, met Heather today at
0: the Avemco booth. She came over to see us as we were we had a session. Today at the Avemco booth, and she is a loyal listener, and not only that, but she's from my neck of the woods. She's from originally from Massachusetts, just a town or two away from where I lived, and uh, so we sort of hit it off right away. And uh, and she was explaining to me one of uh, her life's great adventures, and I and I knew immediately. That it was something that we needed to put on the show because the educational value of what she shared with me needs to be said uh, people need to hear what she has to say
2: good well one of the big concerns that we've talked about on the show i gave a presentation here at uh, at oshkosh the other night with regard to flight instruction and my concern over the the just growing number of flight instruction related accidents. And we've had more than 25 in the last five to six months. And I don't think that number is gonna go down. I actually think the number's gonna go up and I'm really concerned about that. And in talking with Heather and listening to her story, um, this is one of those events where, again, it's a flight instruction related accident. Even though the flight instructor wasn't in the aircraft, the flight instructor turned her loose as a student pilot. And Heather, thank you very much for uh, sharing your story with us because uh, this is the kind of information that a lot of our listeners not only will learn from, I hope, but it'll give them pause so that if they are flying and they are learning, whether it's, you know, as a student pilot or moving on in certificates and ratings, they, they will have at least something in the back of their head based on your story to think about, you know what, am I really ready? And I think this is a, a, a good caption for your story: Is, am I really ready for what it is I'm about to get into? And I think the, the best thing to do is give us uh, give us the synoptic of what happened with you. You're a, an extremely low time student pilot. Um, you, you know it's very <laughs> it's very evident just talking with you that you have a good aptitude and, and you, you grasp flying. And it's apparent that your flight instructor thought, well, I'm going to turn you loose. You can go fly solo. Mm -hmm. And you had less than five hours of total flight time.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I had uh, less than five hours of total solo time. We would kind of waiting for me to get my medical and finally just get that solo moment. We've been so frustrated. So I was um, preparing to do my first solo cross-country. That day, uh, it it was kind of a mix of feeling under pressure to, to start getting it done. Came, came to the airport, pre-flight of the airplane, took off, weather it was, it was acceptable, got down there. Uh, something, something went wrong, and I ended up actually having a pilot-induced oscillation and having a prop strike as a result. So I had to do a go-around, come around and land it safely. But, man, was I shaken from that experience. Like what, what just happened, and who the heck thought I could fly an airplane when I can have that kind of an event?
2: And when we, when we start to dissect your scenario, mm-hmm. you get out to the airport. What was your pre-flight like?
3: Well, during my pre-flight, at some point, I, I managed to flood the engine by accident, so I didn't know how to fix that, so I had to go in and ask the guy at the FBO, and I'm like, well, should I be flying an airplane if I can do that, or am I going to be Googling this at some random field? Um, I'd done a pretty thorough pre-flight in terms of checking out alternate airports, and that was actually how I decided on the airport that I ended up going to, was because the weather made me cancel other ones. Um, so I was confident that I, I wanted the flight to happen and that I had done the the weather-related pre-flights the airplane looks in fine shape.
2: And then as far as, you know, setting yourself up, you're going to an airport you've never been to. It happened to be in Class D airspace, which mm-hmm. is an airport you'd never, you know, in an environment you've never been into because you fly out of an uncontrolled airport. Mm-hmm. And so now you're going to have to be talking to somebody on the radio mm-hmm. and you're going to be taking instruction from an air traffic controller, setting you setting you up to land at this airport. Take us through, in route, what were you thinking? How were you preparing yourself to go into that environment and land at that airport?
3: Well, so I, I had I some confidence because I would gotten used to using flight following, so I was talking to ATC while I was flying down there. But in terms of talking to the actual tower, I really just walked through, okay, i got to check the ATIS, call in with the right, you know, with the right letter, let them know I have it, and then start talking to them. And on the ground, that was about as far as I had gotten in the air. You know, I, I caught up, said the same, right information. They said, okay, straight in this runway. I'm like, okay. But by that point, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. So I was I was very eager to give them the ground at that point in time.
2: And, and I mean, given the fact that it was straight in, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about flying the, uh, the typical traffic pattern and making all the turns. I mean, you're running right in there. But you were telling us that, you know, now you had to change your methodology. You had to change your thinking because you hadn't done a straight in. So mm-hmm. you had to plan for basically getting down in that proper space mm-hmm. to hit your target on the runway.
3: Yeah, so I uh, I got a straight-in, which, you know, most pilots would not complain about because, sweet, saves its time, saves us money. Um, but I realized well, I'd never just done a straight-in approach. I'd only done a traffic pattern turn, so I knew exactly what altitudes and air speeds. So I, I didn't know. I, I just kind of went on a whim. Right?
2: So you're doing the straight-in approach. Mm-hmm. You think you got it all set up. You feeling pretty good, pretty confident?
3: Uh, I think I, I think I was I was stabilized to come down, but I think I knew my airspeed might have been a little bit too fast, and at that point I was I was still nervous enough. I just wanted to get on the ground, and so I came down, and I think I had too much speed, and so I bounced a little bit, and then I bounced a lot, and then I bounced enough to say something's wrong, and full throttle right rudder.
2: And on that go around, anything? Out of the ordinary with the airplane. Did you did you know that you had damaged the aircraft, or was it okay? I got out of here. That's okay. I got the airplane in the air. That's okay. It's still flying. That's okay.
3: It was like the the bounces were definitely far more aggressive than I experienced, and that was what triggered it. But otherwise, I was just more. You know what? Do a go around. This is what I've been trained to do. This is an unfamiliar environment. Just get back up in the air, because then you know then I, then I can take I, I can collect my thoughts before trying to come back in again.
2: So you finally make it around the mm-hmm. pattern,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you land for the second time, mm-hmm. how was the landing on the second?
3: Um, it, it, was, it was smoother, there was a little bit more resistance, I realized after I got down because it was actually very fine stabilized landing, landing within 500 numbers, but I had trouble taxiing and I couldn't figure out why.
2: <laughs> and as you got into the ramp, of course, you got out of the airplane and, you know, that little adrenaline pump. Mm-hmm. You get out of the airplane and you see the front end of the airplane. What were your thoughts?
3: So I, 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 you know, I turn off the engine and I look in front of me and the prop stops at 12 and 6. It's a two-prop blade, and there's about four inches missing off the propeller of wood. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I just do? So I get out and, and look around at the rest of the aircraft and that's... when an I Oh, I had trouble taxiing because the nose gear got bent enough that the wheel is now embedded in it. So I just had to use far more throttle than I needed to because I was rubbing rubber on metal.
2: So now, once you've contacted uh, the organization that you rented the, the, the aircraft from mm-hmm. and you break the bad news to them, mm-hmm. what was their initial reaction to what had happened and then what
3: followed? They were, oh my goodness, she stranded, oh my goodness like what's wrong like' what's wrong with the aircraft? So they sent down um, an instructor, another pilot to come pick me up and, and get me approach. I got ferried back and I heard very little about that incident. I think their insurance company called me a little bit later to, to get more of the finer details. Uh, that was really it. And then it was up to me to call back with the instructor and say, okay, I want to, I know, I, I don't want this to be my end point. Let's, let's fix the straight approach because that seemed to me like what was the, the real issue.
2: And so when you sat down with your instructor, did you dissect that flight to really go through each and every uh, you know aspect of it? that led to the accident?
3: No, so at, at the moment when I first met with him, it was deconstructing the last 30 seconds of a bad final approach, and then it was later that I was deconstructing everything else that, that happened during the flight.
2: And, and again, you, know, you start looking at, okay, in retrospect, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. What was the problem? Did you flare too high? Did you have a bad sight line down the runway? What caused you to get into that balanced condition, and why did you wait so long?
3: I think I could get the rightest, and I just, I didn't, I was, honestly, my head was about 20 miles behind the airplane, because there had, been, there had been a moment when the cloud layer that I was flying into to do this cross-country was lower than expected, and so I had to make a decision to do I climb under the cloud layer or go home, and little voice in my head said go home, but I ignored it, because I just hadn't been there, and so I got down, and I think I legally flew, but it was pretty low beneath the cloud layer and just above the cornfields, so I think... I, my head was 20 miles behind the airplane when I first hit the when I first landed
2: on the runway. Now Todd's back flying, he's, uh, he's been doing it on a very regular basis now for several months. You know, and now you have a, I look at this contrast. You've already been flying, mm-hmm. you already a pilot, but you're relearning. You're in the new ramp up learning curve, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of similarities. Did you think you got behind the airplane?
3: I, I think I had briefed what was on the ground, but I hadn't had the practice making the good aeronautic decision making to trust what I was doing in the air. Do
4: you have problems like that? Being behind the airplane just about every time I'm in the airplane because uh, there are so many things that are different from when I was last flying regularly that I had to get into the mindset of, okay, I'm learning this for the first time. I'm not going to rely on my experience from 10, 15, 30 years ago. Let me take it as as it is right now and learn from this point. And it's a lot to handle. And only through practice am I less behind the airplane and more with what's going on. Part of that is briefing the flight to myself. Part of it is simulating the flight as much as I can with iPad simulators for avionics or a flight simulator for procedures. But uh, all that is so much different when it's coming at you live in the airplane. You can't hit pause, you can't hit stop, you have to carry through with it, and again, the decisions you make, you can second guess it later on. But in the moment, you have to press on, and one hopes that you're doing the right decision every time. Now, when you after you
2: uh, got through the event, your flight instructor left.
3: Well, so I, I we we kind of we we proved that I could land again, and then I was sort of at a transition point. I'm like, what do I do next? Do I keep flying? Do I not? So I, I kind of stepped back and took a break, and then I, I I found a different flight instructor at that school that better fit. Uh, My my academic background and how I thought that I should be learning from somebody.
2: And and do you think that with your first instructor, there was, you know, um, a a bit of a, uh, for lack of better term, um, um, a lack of ability to communicate effectively with the fundamental principles that you needed with that amount of flight time to be able to accomplish the type of flight that you did?
3: It, it, it did seem like there was a bit of a disconnect because I'm like, okay, I can land in the powder. That's a, that's a very different animal than doing cross-country. And unfortunately, it took me having that incident to wake up to all of these facts.
2: And then what was so different about your next instructor versus your first instructor that gave you more confidence that, okay, I've got this under control. Yeah, I got that behind me. I'm moving on. Uh, he,
3: he took some time with me to, to work through and to help me fight back and, and to... Because I think I suffered more from the, like, the hazards of resignation, so he gave me the opportunities to, okay, fight back. Like, we see you resigned right now, we see you've gone quiet. It's not that you're thinking, it's that you've actually kind of retreated inwards and you you aren't acting as PIC. So he gave me the space to be PIC in a few flights where, like, one time he just played, like, he just played dead. And I had to, the way I imagine it's like my ego filled the cockpit in a, in a healthy way and I became pilot in and command and I took us to this airport he's like you're fine I just sat there I did nothing but you got it yeah. but it was giving me that space to take over and to realize that I, I needed that mental freedom that wasn't just okay you're, you're nice and you're sitting next to me
2: so again you're continuing your flight instruction mm-hmm. how close do you do private
3: I, I actually got my private about two and a half years ago so like I because this incident happened about four years But, yeah, I have my private. I'm I'm hoping to become a CFI after learning those hard lessons and realizing how much, you know, depending on the CFI, it's it's not the best quality. I don't want want another me to happen again.
2: So now you're the instructor. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the advice you're giving to the audience who is contemplating flying or we we have young people that are going, man, I want to go to the airlines. I'm learning how to fly now. What kind of lessons Mm -hmm. did you learn that you can educate them on so that they can be thinking, okay, even if I do something wrong, this isn't the Mm end-all.
3: That's a good question. Well, first of all, I I realize that the solo is, we we put so much emphasis on it because it's like all of a sudden you have this freedom. Solo means that you've landed the aircraft successfully and it probably a control pattern by yourself. It doesn't mean that you've gotten all the decision-making experience that you need to to make those cross-countries. So you need to slowly give yourself the distance with it. Now, I still, I've i got the growth mindsets with the fixed mindset. So there's a there's a balance between what's pushing a student beyond their, their own capabilities and what's, okay, you know what, it's a little bit further than we've been, but I trust you, you know, this airspace. Cause another thing with my incident was that I was simply just going in a direction that I'd never been before. So the terrain wasn't familiar. And, you know, I, w- I was running on you know the, the GPS probably more than I should have been on that cross country.
2: One of the things that John really talks about on the show, on all of our shows, we end the show talking about pre-flight preparation. Mm -hmm. Not only with physically looking at the airplane and making sure it's airworthy, but having that plan. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: When you look at it retrospectively, could you have planned better for that segment of flight, given the fact that it is more than 50 miles away, this is the first time you're flying to that kind of airport? Do you really feel that you were fully prepared? Did you feel rushed? Or did you just feel like, okay, I can make it through this, but do I have the real confidence to be able to do that?
3: I I think there there was pressure, not because of time pressure to get done, but because of uh, just, we've been waiting for you to be at this point for so long. Um, I probably would have tried to enforce personal minimums a bit more because whatever that ceiling layer I flew under, it it was probably legal, but it wasn't the best decision to continue flying in that Um, and understanding what that ceiling layer looks like. But also, sometimes we need confidence saying no. Like we need to confidently say, no, I'm not going to do this. So that kind of experience would have made me much better. Would have made my pilot training much better.
2: John, I know that you know you've had you know some interaction with Heather, and you know one of the things that I got from just our initial discussion was the fact that you were enamored with her story, and you thought that this was a great a great learning lesson for some of
0: our listeners and no, viewers. No question, and it's a great learning lesson. I mean, I put myself, as she was telling the story, I put myself in her shoes. And, you know, I've been there, I soloed, I was scared to death my first time when the, the instructor jumped out and says, take it around. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I those feelings all came back as I was listening to Heather talk. So I understood that. But I also quickly recognized the educational value of what she was saying the fact that she's so forthcoming talking about not only the event but her feelings and and uh, articulating what she believes were her shortcomings uh, through that process so i mean that's a quite a mature place to be
2: and it's and it's hard because pilots we all carry an ego and the last thing we want to do is admit that we did something wrong or we were at fault or whatever but we're not infallible as humans. And, and I think, you know, with your story that you were able to come to grips with it, you were able to say, yeah, I could have done things better and yeah, I got myself in a position I didn't want to be in. That became the learning lesson for you to be at a better place now in your flying career than if you tried to harbor it, find excuses, find other people, and you didn't have a good support system.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so one of the things I wanted to do in, in kind of the healing process of it was to give myself credit for, okay, I did make it down there in one piece. There are better, I, I could have made better decisions at each point that wouldn't have led to it, but I still made it down there in one piece and I could have made worse decisions. So I tried to give myself that, at least encouragement that I was on the right track to some extent, but I just needed a little bit more help.
4: And on that decision making that you just mentioned, there's something that you mentioned in your story I'd like to bring to light for a minute here. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that when you had the prop strike, you weren't immediately aware that you damaged the prop.
3: No, no. So because it was a pilot-induced oscillation, the porpoising, I, I thought it was just one bad bounce landing. You know, okay. And then it got worse, and then all of a sudden the bucket is coming up. I'm like, okay, something's, something's wrong.
4: And but my point here was that you decided to go <laughs> in the pattern and land. Yeah. You didn't decide to go back to your home airport.
3: I, I was very tempted to fly home with my tail between my legs.
4: What would have happened, in your opinion, Greg, with a damaged wooden prop like that if she had decided to fly home? I can answer
0: that because I saw the pictures that she has of that prop and we're we're going to put them up, but it was clearly delaminating. And uh, I don't think 20 minutes of flight later that airplane would have been flying.
4: My point is the decision you made was literally a lifesaver to come around in the pattern mm-hmm. and land it there and then have the flight school take over mm-hmm. and in retrospect why do you think you made that right
3: decision honestly it, it was ATC just offering me another lap in the pattern and you know what okay thank you I'll maybe I should stay close I'll, I'll do that I'll come in take a breather because taking a breather was the right thing but whether I was going to fly home or not, I, I, I will give credit to ATC for watching me go through that and still being there for me, even in, in, even in his little way. And as I was getting ferried away, he, he gave me a compliment through the radios of the aircraft that I was in, you know. So she, could, she did a good job. Because I came back in and I landed it fine. I mean, as fine as you can with a you know, damaged prop. But listen to those around you, I guess, would be the answer.
4: And I want to thank you for opening yourself up the way you did. Because you are doing right now, because this isn't something you've spoken about publicly before.
3: No, no, I've thought of many times about writing it down. I've definitely deconstructed it enough, but I, I hadn't actually shared it in any public forum. But I listen to you guys a lot. So the fact that I got to meet you at AirVenture, well, I got the best accident investigator around. I don't well, know it hurts your ego.
2: Yeah, the check's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, again... Thank you for sharing the story. We know that our viewers and listeners, I mean, it's hard to raise your hand, speak up, and then confess when you've done something. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this has gotten our folks watching, listening, and thinking, because that's what we try to do with the show. And we really appreciate you sharing your story.
3: Can I say one? final I know um, I know we, uh, I know we all I always
2: of give John words. the final, <laughs> final word, <laughs> I always give Todd the
3: second final word so I'm gonna start with you I with get, the third final I give word. my final words to you <laughs> uh, well so for the longest time I still think about this is that when I'm when I'm going through my pre-flight and I'm going to the airport and I think okay like am I tired am I stressed out am i using caffeine there's a little voice in the back of my head that says if you let your personal margins fall too much that could happen again so mm-hmm. never let your personal margins get to the point where, you know, if you have a bad weather or you have some kind of delay, you get to the point where that can happen. It's not saying it's going to, and I don't be more of it, but it's a reality that can happen if and you don't are, take care of it.
2: Those are great points, and, and we try to emphasize that. John and I talk about it in a variety of different ways. Because if you start to compromise, if you start to justify, that's when you're going to find yourself in a position you don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. Because that is really a stopgap. It's that safety margin. And the more justification and the more erosion to that safety margin, when you finally do get to a point where you got to do something, you don't have that margin anymore. And any decision will be the wrong decision. So thank you for sharing that. We really appreciate it. And, John, as I always do, I leave you with our last words.
0: Well, I think that we've covered the last words in in everything this young lady has said. I mean, pre-flighting is important. Your personal minimums are important. Listening to that little voice in the back of your head is yeah. important.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, I, I hope everybody uh, can take something away from this event. Uh, and thank you for coming here. Oh, I can put
3: a jaw need a hug.
2: Well, it is our honor. Thank you very much thank for coming much. forward. No. And we always love John because he brings the emotion to the show. Todd and I, we're just his sidekicks. So. Well, you know what? We've
0: been out and we've picked up too many people.
3: Yeah.
0: And uh, yeah. to have this opportunity to share an event like this that maybe prevent one person yeah. is invaluable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So with that, we will see you next week on another episode of Flight Safety Detectives.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.